0: We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 11, and you can see, um, you could follow along in a pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, it will be on page 947. You can also see the text there printed out in uh, pages 8 and 9 in the order of worship. Before we look at this passage, which is a a pretty extensive passage, um, just I want to just bring us up to speed on where we've been in the book of Romans. We have come to the end of Paul's train of thought that he began back in chapter 9. So three chapters worth of lots of scripture citations and tons of amazing material. But in chapter 9, he expressed his great sorrow and his unceasing anguish in his heart for his fellow Jews, his fellow Israelites who did not believe in the Messiah. That's how this part started. And all of it, uh, if if all of the descendants of Abraham that he looks around and he sees, if, if many of them are rejecting the Messiah, then it raises a question for Paul, who has just spoken in Romans chapter 8 of the wonders of God's Unshakable love for his people and this declaration that God is truly for his people as we just sang. If Paul looks around and sees that this God who is for his people now has all these unbelieving Israelites around and doesn't seem to be saving them, how can we trust God's promises? How can we know that God is faithful to his word? How can we know that God won't actually reject us? And how can we know that he will keep us in the promise of his inseparable love. Well, to answer that, Paul then goes on through chapters 9 through 11 to explain what he calls here the mystery of what God has actually been doing all along. How God has been sovereignly working out this plan to show surprising mercy to all kinds of people, both Jews and Gentiles, who have all alike been disobedient to God's commands, and who have become recipients of his grace. And this morning, as we encounter the the wisdom and the, the depths of God's plan, it will encourage our hearts this morning that our salvation from beginning to end has always depended on God's free grace and kindness that he has shown to us in Jesus Christ. And it reassures us that we can trust him with every promise that he has made for us. And so that's the big picture of what Paul is doing here. And so I'd like to read our text, and then we will uh, walk through it together. So hear God's word as I read Romans 11, verses 11 to 36. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature back into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Let's pray and ask his help this morning as we consider it. Our Father in heaven, we come humbly to you before your word, acknowledging that there is so much we don't know, that your wisdom and your plan is far beyond searching out. We can't even figure it out if if we had all the time in eternity. You're so beyond us in your ways, and yet you have... Stoop down and condescended to us, to speak to us in ways that we can understand who you are and what we need to know about your saving grace so that we can enter into relationship with you and know the wonder of being yours for all eternity. Will you help us by your Holy Spirit this morning as we consider these things? Give us faith to believe the truth of your promises to us in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to look at this passage in three points, Um, God's plan, Paul's concern, and our response. And I'll walk you through those as we go. But first of all, we'll consider God's plan, then Paul's concern, and then finally our response. So we'll spend a little bit more time right up front on God's plan as we work through a, a pretty extensive text this morning. Paul continues, as we come to chapter 11, by asking himself questions about what God has done with the Jewish people. You may remember back in chapter 10, he, he was asking these questions. Do they not believe because they haven't heard? Do they not believe because they haven't understood? And he says no to both of those things. The, the reason many of the Jews at the at the time of Paul's writing that The reason many of them were not believing is because they had rejected the Messiah. Well, now in our passage, chapter 11, verse 11, we come to another question. Then does that mean God has rejected his people? And the answer to that, as we saw last week, is no, because Israel's rejection is not total. There is a remnant of Jewish people believing Jews like the Apostle Paul himself, who are Continuing to be saved, but there is a partial hardening, and that partial hardening has led to a, a spiritual dullness among the Jewish people. But Paul says not only is Israel's rejection not total, but in our section today, he's especially drawing out that it's not final. And you see his question there in verse 11 Did they stumble in order that they might fall? Did they stumble in order that they might fall? And what he's saying there is, has their tripping, has their stumbling over the Messiah, their trespass and their disobedience, as he'll call it throughout the passage, of of not trusting in Christ, has that led to the Jewish people completely falling away from salvation? That's the question Paul is asking. And then he answers it right away and then spends many verses unpacking the answer. But he says, by no means, That is is not what has happened. Why not, Paul? Well, what he's going to show us is that God has a plan for them, and that's what he's going to unpack and and we'll look at together. Now, before we look at this text more thoroughly, it's important to clarify what Paul is talking about here. Uh, We are hearing a lot about Israel in the news, and rightfully so. There is a lot going on on the world stage. We are praying about the current war with Hamas. And it's important for us as we come to a passage like this not to confuse who Paul is talking about and what Paul is saying here. When Paul speaks of Israel in this passage, he's speaking of ethnic Israel. He's speaking of people who are Jewish by blood, who are descended from Abraham. And it's important to not confuse that with him speaking of what we know today as the state of Israel. And so, kids, as you listen to this sermon, uh, you could keep track of something for me. How many times do I say Israel or Israelite? It's going to be a lot. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So I'm really curious about that. But also, as we go through this passage and it says Israel or Israelite, we need to understand that what that's referring to are people who are Jewish by blood. Um, This passage can sometimes be misunderstood to say more than it's actually saying. Paul isn't talking about here, he isn't talking here about issues of what we know as the, the state of Israel and their blessing and their relationship to the land. He's talking here about ethnic Israelites receiving the blessings of salvation and the blessings of salvation in Christ, And so uh, that will help us keep these things clear as we look at what Paul says. Well, Paul then, as he's speaking about the situation regarding those who are Jewish by blood, he says that there are three stages of God's plan for them. And he, he really just recapitulates or says over and over again these three stages of that plan in various ways throughout the passage. And so um, I want us to see in verses 11 through 12, if you take a look at those, he'll, he'll do one unpacking of these three stages, and then we'll see how that applies to the rest of the passage. Notice verses 11 and 12. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So, we can see right there the three stages laid out. Stage one, he refers to as Israel's trespass. As the passage goes on, he'll speak of it as Israel's failure, Israel's disobedience, their rejection of the Messiah and the subsequent hardening that he's been speaking about uh, throughout chapters 10 and 11. So that's stage one, Israel's trespass. But then there's also stage two, which is Gentile salvation. Gentile salvation. As a result of Israel rejecting the Messiah, the gospel going out in a prolific way to the Gentiles. He speaks of this as reconciliation of the world and making Israel jealous. And that's part of what's happening in stage two there. As the gospel goes out and Gentiles embrace the promises of God in the Messiah, it's making the Jewish people jealous. And that brings us to stage three, which is Israel's full inclusion, Israel's full inclusion. Uh, Their acceptance, he speaks of it as. And in verse 26, he calls it all Israel being saved, which we'll talk about uh, in in a few moments. And so we have these three stages uh, that are unfolding in this chapter again and again. And Paul says that this can be likened to an olive tree in verses 16 to 24. And I think the olive tree example is uh, really helpful in how it gives us a picture of this story that's unfolding as Paul's speaking about it. He speaks of ethnic Israel as being a cultivated olive tree with a holy root. Cultivated olive tree with a holy root. And this means a, a people with a rich heritage. And it's the heritage that he described earlier in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5 when he talked about the Jewish people as adopted as God's people, that they have the glory of God's presence that was with them, especially as we think about it in the Old Testament, in the temple, and the tabernacle. They have the covenants, the law, the entire worship system, the promises of God for salvation. All of those things are speaking of the holy root of this rich heritage that was given to the Jewish people by God's sovereign choice. And what he says is, out of this root, some of the natural branches, they grew up in that tree, and some of them embraced Christ and remained in that tree. People like Paul himself, Jewish believers who saw that all of the the promises and the covenants and all of that were pointing to the yes and amen that is in Jesus the Messiah, and they saw and embraced that and remained in that tree. But others were broken off because of their unbelief, he says in verse 20. This is back to stage one, right? They rejected Christ, and they didn't receive the promised blessings. But Paul goes on to say, God did such an amazing thing, right? He could have stopped the story right there. But stage two occurred, and Paul says he took branches from a wild olive tree. Branches from a wild olive tree, Gentiles like we heard about in Ephesians chapter 2 in our scripture reading, alienated from Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He went and found these wild branches and he cut them off and he grafted them into this cultivated olive tree so that, as he says in verse 17, they could share in the nourishing root of all that had been promised to Abraham. As we as Gentiles share in all the blessings of salvation by receiving our Messiah, who was also Jewish. How amazing is that? And, and notice what he says in verse 22. Note the kindness and the severity of God. God showed His just severity in breaking off branches for their unbelief. But then he showed such amazing kindness by grafting in branches who had never even heard of this cultivated tree in the first place. Isn't that just amazing? But God's amazing kindness and mercy, they don't end there. That's just stage two. And what Paul is saying is stage three is still to come. Stage three we find talked about in verse 23. Such amazing words. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. Paul goes on to say that God has the power and God has a sovereign, unshakable plan to graft natural branches back into that olive tree again. And he says, Israel's current hardening is temporary. It is until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. He says there in verse 25, um, we could understand that as saying until the gospel has gone forth to the Gentile nations and reaches a level of fullness that's known only to God, but the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. And then he says, many ethnic Israelites will turn and believe the gospel and be grafted back into the tree. And verse 26 says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, as scripture often does with the word all, it doesn't mean every single Israelite. It doesn't mean uh, every single Israelite who has ever lived. But it does mean all of the ethnic Israelites, those who are related to Abraham by birth, whom God has called to himself, will come in to the olive tree again. And now, as with all biblical prophecy, um, many of these details only become clear to us in hindsight. And so we're not exactly sure about a lot of things related to this. Um, And if this is stretching to you or the first time you're hearing any of it, I I meant to say this earlier, but I'm happy to talk with you and and answer uh, any questions that you may have because everything I'm saying is debated and you can find uh, people who disagree with me on I think pretty much every word uh, right there, except the daylight savings thing. That We're all agreed about that, I think. <laughs> and so um, if it's stretching, we're happy to talk it through. But for the sake of simplicity, I, I believe this is what Scripture is most clearly saying. But as with all biblical prophecy, we see it clearly in hindsight so much, right? And so there are a few things that we, we don't know exactly what this is going to look like or or when exactly it's going to happen. But Paul cites here Isaiah 59 uh, to once again show that this has been part of God's plan all along. And it seems that he's tying the events of all Israel being saved closely to the return of Christ the deliverer who's going to come from Zion, Zion, which is often a way of speaking of heaven uh, throughout the Old Testament and as we come into the New Testament. And so somehow related to the return of Christ, a fullness of the Gentiles coming in, and a revival amongst ethnic Israel coming back to the olive tree, all tied in with the Lord's return and the culmination of all of his promises. Now think about this amazing story. This is, this is what Paul, we could get caught up in all the details and try and make charts and, and all kinds of things like that, but what, what Paul really wants us to see is how amazing this story is in regards to disobedience and mercy. And he, he summarizes this in verses 30 to 32, but he says, just as you were at one time disobedient, you were at one time, as he's been saying in Romans 1, enemies of God, just like unbelieving Israel is now. But what happened to you? You have received mercy. Mercy that came to you because of Israel's disobedience. And now, he says, ethnic Israel is disobedient, and they're turning from God, and they're rejecting Christ, just as the rest of humanity has done. But God is using the mercy that he has shown to you, to us, to make them jealous so that they would see and long for the blessings that were held out to them in the messiah and so that they would do what that they would turn and receive his open-handed mercy so that the mercy that he promised to their forefathers would be shown to them because God's gifts everything he gives and God's calling his election his choice his love it's all irrevocable there are no takebacks When God promises these things. And Paul uses this amazing how much more argument when he thinks of this wondrous plan of salvation. Back in verse 12, when he begins, he says, if their trespass and failure has brought such riches for the world. Think about the riches of the world that Israel's failure has brought. Vast numbers of Gentiles, most of who you see seated here and the millions of people who have gone before who have looked to Christ, how much more will Israel's full inclusion mean? And in verse 15, he says, it will be something so amazing that it can only be described as life from the dead. And you think of the picture that he's given of these lifeless branches strewn all over the ground, broken broken off because of unbelief, and then gathered back up and grafted back in, teeming with the life of the rich heritage that was given to them in Christ. Or another image is a valley of dry bones, as Ezekiel sees it, a valley just filled with nothing but lifelessness. And yet the Spirit of God blowing over those bones and life springing from the dead by the Spirit of God. What an amazing plan. And that's why Paul bursts into doxology as he reflects upon all of this, as we saw at the end of, this, of our chapter. He, he thinks about the wonder and the depth and the riches of God's plan and of God's ways. And we'll think about that along with him in a few moments. So that's an overview of God's plan regarding mercy for Jews and for Gentiles that Paul unpacks in chapter 11. And so we've seen God's plan, but now we have to consider Paul's concern. Paul's concern. Did you notice the correctives throughout this passage? In verse 18, he says, don't be arrogant. In verse 25, he says, lest you be wise in your own sight. And he also says, I'm speaking to you, Gentiles. (laughs) Paul just grabs us by the chin and says, look me in the eye. I'm talking to you. And this amazing plan of God, there's something that tends to happen in the human heart as it unfolds. Paul warns about the danger of spiritual pride. And we see it so clearly in verses 20 to 21. He says, So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. That's a sobering warning, isn't it? Let's think for a moment about what he's saying. There were Jews who were part of Israel's rich heritage, right? But instead of that resulting in them Turning and embracing God's kindness to them in the Messiah, they rejected it and pursued a righteousness in another way. And they rejected that kindness and God cut them off. And Paul says So, what do you think will happen to you if you, when you hear this amazing news of salvation in Christ, received only by faith as a gift? And you take that news and you become proud and arrogant, thinking that there's something to this salvation other than just God's mercy. And you start looking down on those who have turned away and rejected it, or you start thinking that there's something in you or something about your pedigree or your works that may God be gracious to you. He says, if you're doing that, then you like them, are showing that you're not truly one of God's people. You haven't really understood and embraced his kindness. And if God cut them off with all of that history, what do you think he'll do to you as a wild branch? That's the weight of that warning. Now, before we talk about how we correct that, I want to pause and, and think about what Paul is really getting at here. Here, Paul is specifically talking about Gentiles looking down on Jewish people, viewing and treating them poorly because they're now the disobedient ones who are rejecting Christ. And we're going to see more how this plays out actually in the church at Rome as Romans continues. This is a major thing Paul's going to be addressing as it goes on, how it's even still affecting Christian relationships But Paul is clearly saying that a negative posture toward people who are Jewish has no place in the church. What we would call today anti-Semitism. Kids, what that means is an overall attitude of being against Jewish people simply because they're Jewish. Speaking of things like blaming them for many things, um, wanting to harm them, wanting to rid the world of them. This was something that was all around in the Roman culture of Paul's day already. And it's still with us today. Now, this doesn't mean that we as Christians must give unilateral support for everything that the state of Israel does. Paul explains that they, like all unbelievers, are in a condition of overall disobedience to God. But it does mean that as Christians, we cannot stand for or tolerate any forms of anti-Semitism in the church or in our culture. And unfortunately, even in spite of Paul so clearly saying here, don't be arrogant toward the branches. Throughout over 2,000 years of church history, we've seen the opposite unfold even by those who profess the name of Christ. You can find writings and teachings right from the early church onward that are so orthodox about so many things. They're they're nailing it on so many things, and yet they're speaking disparageably. They're condemning, they're mocking the Jewish people for being Jewish and for that relation to crucifying the Messiah. The exact thing Paul is saying, don't do. And it's really sobering to realize how blind we can become to things like this. As even less than 100 years ago, the Jewish Holocaust was carried out by a nation that was comprised of many who called themselves Christians, who either went along with, or turned a blind eye toward, or even embraced and supported the killing of Jewish people and other minorities. That's in our recent past as believers. How can this happen? (laughs) Well, that's why Paul so strongly warns of the danger of spiritual pride. It is so easy for us when we receive this message of kindness and goodness and grace and gift for us to start to think there's something about us that's better than those who haven't seen it. For us to think that somehow because God has chosen us, he no longer cares about them. You know, I, I don't know where your heart is today on these things. Uh, we may not struggle with antisemitism, but do we struggle with other less-than-isms? Are there groups of people that you look down upon people groups from another country, maybe not Jews, maybe Palestinians, Iranians, Ukrainians, Russians, Mexicans, Americans? Would your neighbors, would your coworkers who know you say that you look down on other people? Or that there's something about you that sees the dignity and worth of everyone who's created in the image of God. Something about you that's different and that makes them jealous to know the welcome and the love of a God who sees people that way. You see, as Christians, we know that all people deserve the dignity and respect of being an image bearer of God. But Paul says something here. He says, it goes far deeper than that as those who have received nothing but the sheer kindness and grace of God, in spite of the fact that we were his enemies, we should be the ones who show that same kindness and welcome and love and grace in our posture toward others who even now stand as the enemies of God. So Paul's concern here. Is how we would respond to the gospel, and that it wouldn't produce in us a spiritual pride that wreaks havoc on the church and also brings great harm in the world. That's the warning. But then, finally, point three what is our response? What do we do instead? How do we counter? What is the antidote for something so toxic, so destructive? And um, I think it's important, I think it's important as we come to point three to realize how God uses warnings like this in the lives of Christians. We should hear this where he says, Don't be proud, but fear. And in the lives of believers, what it makes us say is, Wait a minute, I don't want to do that. Am I doing that? Help me see it. How do I turn from it? And God uses even those words of warning to turn us away from the very thing that could be so dangerous to us and to bring us to, this, to the remedies, to the correctives. And he holds forth two correctives, I'd say. And we'll look at them in turn. The first is continue in God's kindness and second, marvel at God's mercy. So as we consider point number three, our response, it's really twofold. Continue in God's kindness and marvel at God's mercy. First, continue in God's kindness. Notice what he says in verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. There's the answer. There's the turn. Um, Paul has shown throughout all this book of Romans and really the rest of scripture that All of us as people have not responded to God as we should have. All have sinned. All deserve the wages of sin, which is death. All are enemies of God. And yet what he has also shown is this. God's unrelenting posture toward disobedient and contrary people is kindness. Kindness that leads us to repentance and repentance and faith. And faith in Christ says by its very essence this, there is nothing that I have done. It's only God's kindness that can save me. As Paul says in that doxology, who has given a gift to God that God should in any way pay him back something? Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling because I throw myself upon the kindness of God. And Paul says you start in that kindness when you come to faith and you continue in that kindness to keep from becoming spiritually proud. Brothers and sisters, maybe you've been a believer for a few days, a few weeks. Maybe it's been many decades. But your salvation today depends just as much upon God's kindness as it did when you were living at your worst as an enemy of God. There is nothing that has happened since you became a believer that has shifted your salvation from the kindness of God to something else. And Paul says we cling to that, we cling to a gift oriented approach to grace. Have you lost sight of God's kindness this morning? Do you find yourself looking down on others because of what they're doing or not doing? Do you look down on yourself because you're not measuring up in the Christian life like you think that you should? Did you walk through those doors this morning fully aware of the kindness and the mercy and the love and the smile of God upon you which has not wavered one bit because of what God has done in Christ. If you're doubting the kindness of God, if you're wavering in the kindness of God, you've come to the right place. Because in a few moments, the bread and the cup are going to proclaim to each and every one of us God's kindness in giving us his son so that we could receive his merciful welcome over and over and over again throughout all eternity. And so Paul says, continue in God's kindness as a remedy for spiritual pride. But you may say, you know what? I don't feel God's kindness today. I know, Craig, with what you're saying about God's posture towards me, I know I can't really argue with that, but with the things going on in my life, God doesn't seem like he's being very kind to me right now. Paul himself understood this situation, didn't he? What provoked this whole discussion? Paul looked around at his present circumstances, and he saw many of the kinsmen whom he loved, and he said, Is God even being faithful to his promises when things look this way? How can I even trust God's love and his grace? But we see Paul's train of thought unfold and what he directs us to when we find ourselves questioning the kindness of God. And he says, step back and marvel at God's mercy. Not only continue in kindness, but marvel at God's mercy. You see what Paul does? He zooms out, right, the whole scope of redemptive history and God's plan of bringing people to himself. And he shows God's unsearchable, inscrutable, which means we can't figure it out, his unsearchable, inscrutable plan to show mercy to sinners in a way that's perfectly in accord with his character and that perfectly keeps every promise. That's what Paul argues for three chapters. God has a plan to do that. And he invites us to this. Think of all that God did in orchestrating all of human history in such a way that you would be here today hearing about the mercy and grace of God. If God has been orchestrating the entire universe to bring you to this, then you can certainly trust his unchanging, inseparable, eternal love for you and know that he will just as wisely continue to direct all things as in such a way for your good and his glory until you receive the fullness of that surpassing glory that has been promised to all who turn to Christ. When we stop and we consider the sovereign mercy of God orchestrating all things for the sake of keeping his promises to his people, then it reminds us that we can trust him in the promises today even when we don't feel his kindness toward us. Because ultimately, we are all part of a greater story. Paul ends with those words, from him and through him and to him are all things. Brothers and sisters, you were created by God. You come from him. Our salvation comes from him. It is through him in the work of Christ. And God has so worked through Christ to bring you to him so that we can know one day what it is to glorify God and enjoy him forever as the one who has extended his never-ending merciful welcome to sinners like you and me. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your ways are far beyond us. There are many things that we don't understand. But we pray that you would assure us of your love and grace that we see so clearly in the cross, that you would strengthen our faith until one day we behold our Savior's face. And we know the unsurpassable glory that makes all the sufferings of this life somehow pale in comparison to what you're working to reveal to us for all eternity. Will you strengthen us as we continue? Will you reassure us of your love? We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.